Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz. And I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah, this is a great kid. With a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hi, this is Beth Maitland. And this is Joel Brooks. And we're on Brandon's Buzz. We're buzzing with Brandon. We are. We're buzzing with Brandon. So tune in. Hey, this is Nicholas Rodriguez. You are listening to Brandon's Buzz. Be prepared to laugh. You're going to have a good time. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. This is Pamela K. Long, and I am buzzing with Brandon. And I can tell you that it's some of the most fun that you'll have, so you need to tune this in. This is Gloria Loring, and I've just been buzzed by Brandon, and I gave Brandon some buzz. This is Maya Bialik, and you are lucky enough to be listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon Thursday, November 26th. 2009. It's 10 p.m. in the east. It's 7 p.m. back west. It's 9 p.m. here in Frigid, Texas. It is Thanksgiving night, and in the spirit of the holiday, I thank you all for spending a bit of your holiday evening with me and with my fabulous guests, and I certainly hope you enjoy what you hear tonight. I want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving, and uh, I hope you'll pardon me while I take a turn for the saccharine here, but you know, I have an amazing family, and I have fantastic friends, and I have the most incredible boyfriend and the most gorgeous home. And if all of that isn't sickening enough, I also have been granted this year the most spectacular opportunity to sit here in my pajamas and have what I believe are interesting, compelling conversations with actors and artists whose work I have long been a rabid fan of. And I want you to know that I am so incredibly grateful for that chance and for all of the people who have so nicely allowed me to monopolize a measure of their time in both creating and listening to this show to them and to you, I say a, a most profound and sincere thank you. Uh, you know, doing this job, it's not at all professional to play favorites. Uh, but lately, as I refer to to uh, past episodes of this show, there are three conversations that I find myself listening to time and again, uh, and they are a September chat that I had with the magnificent Linda Dano, best known for her uh, Emmy-winning stint on Another World, an October exchange I had with the great Jessica Tuck, late of One Life to Live. And a show I did just a couple weeks ago with the hilariously witty Cale Brown, uh, best known for stints on both Another World and One Life to Live. Uh, and so tonight I've decided to splice together what I consider to be the highlights of those three conversations and meld them into one dynamite 70-plus minute exchange of moments and memories from soap days long past. Uh, you know, the experts, the, the experts, the excerpts you're about to hear are almost exclusively soap-related, so if you haven't already listened to the entirety of the aforementioned episodes, I absolutely encourage you to do so, because I'm extremely proud of each of these three shows, and in them we discussed so much more than these actors' respective stints on the the shows they're best known for. Um, Jessica Tuck discussed her time away from soaps and told us all about her new environment-related online endeavor, Inspire the Change. Linda Dano discussed uh, the evolution of her line of, of home accessories for QVC, 
Kale Brown got frank about his alcoholism and his new life as a screenwriter. Uh, you know, these are these are three fascinating people, and they are monumentally great actors. And if you ask me, the fact that not one of these three folks is in the daytime genre anymore is at least as feasible an explanation for the genre's woes as any other that I've heard batted around. Um, so I, I really hope you enjoy this. I'm going to say Happy Thanksgiving one final time, and then I'm going to shut up and let the masters speak. First up tonight, the incredible Jessica Tuck. Enjoy, everybody. She left One Life to Live in 1992 after a memorable Emmy-nominated three-and-a-half-year stint, but her parting gift to her fans, the heart-wrenching, gorgeously lyrical extended death sequence of her character, the ever-embattled Megan Gordon Harrison, was so intensely mesmerizing that we all still vividly remember it, and her, most of two decades later. She has since gone on to a remarkable career in film and television, cultivating entire new generations of fans thanks to her work in such projects as High School Musical and True Blood, and she's recently launched an exciting new online endeavor entitled Inspire the Change, which aims to mo motivate us all toward going green, and she's come by the buzz this evening to discuss all of this and so much more. You know, I had a 10-minute phone conversation with her the weekend before last, and had so much fun chatting with her at that time that I was on a high for the rest of the week, and I'm literally dying to dive right into this remarkable woman's incredible story tonight. Let's do it right now. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the enchanting, the exhilarating Jessica Tuck. Oh, this is Brandon. What an incredible introduction. <laughs> I feel like the, the interview should end there. I'm not sure how I can stop that. <laughs> it's very well deserved, my dear. How are you doing? I am doing very, very well. Thank you. I was just going to say, I'm sitting here with a cup of tea, excited to talk to you. <laughs> you know, it's such an honor for me. It's such a thrill. I've been a fan of yours for longer than either of us would care to remember, I think. Okay. <laughs> that would make <laughs> <ease> me fine. <laughs> was One Life your big break, or was there something that happened before that that maybe kind of set you on your path a little a little before that? Um, I mean, really, One Life to Live was my first, you know, sort of quote-unquote, high-profile, professional, legitimate job. Um Hopefully, you won't be able to search through and find the small things I did before that, which were mostly <laughs> NYU films and <laughs> horror films. And, you know, thank God they didn't have, you know, YouTube and all the rest of it. Yeah. Back when I was first starting out, because there could be a backlog of embarrassing moments for me. Although, you know, I certainly don't regret having done any of it. I never sure. took off my clothes. I never did anything inappropriate. <laughs> but, you know, you get your feet wet doing what you can. Uh -huh. and actually, that's sort of the stuff your kids want to see more than anything. Um, but, no, I would say One Life to Live was my really my first big break. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. My three and a half years on One Life to Live spoiled me in a way because sure. um, it was – we had such a good group of people. You know, I think it's like when people go to high school, it really depends on your class at the time, uh -huh. what uh -huh. your experience is like. I just feel so fortunate to have gotten a, a great group of people. Everybody was so wonderful. Uh, and I, it just was so sad, so sad when I left. And I know it was my decision. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I kind of thought, oh, I could stay here forever. I really could, and and yet I wanted to try some other things, and so you know that's that's exactly what I was going to ask you, and I was going to ask you later, but I'll, I'll I'll do it now since you're talking about it. You know, was it just that uh, you were terrified of getting too comfortable too quickly, or you know, was it? I mean, do do you just have a natural bit of wanderlust in you anyway? I you know I think it's sort of a combination of a lot of things. I think it was three and a half years of of real intense work, and I I. 
to be honest, I was exhausted. I mean, knock on wood, I, I was so fortunate I got to play this amazing character that was so much fun. Um, but, you know, I had very little life outside of that, of the soap, and um, it, it really had been just the soap for three and a half years. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was still young enough where I could sort of try some other things, and I might really regret it if I didn't. So I took the plunge. And, um, you know, I don't regret having left. Uh, I certainly appreciate more what I had at the time, <laughs> I mean, more what I had now than, uh-huh. than I did maybe at the time. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, I think when you're young, you have a little more bravado. You have, you're like, sure. yeah, baby, I can get out there. And, and I'm really glad. I mean, I, I am really glad for the freedom I had to do some other things. I, I really miss and appreciate the consistency of a soap, um, the consistency of the work, which allows you to sort of kind of um, drop into a character the, and also the, the people around you. I mean, I judging Amy is a, is another time when there was a great ensemble of people, and I loved 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 working with them. Um, but aside from you know, like one life to live was really my um, sort of jump into the business, and mm-hmm. some of those people are still my great friends, and um, and I and I loved it, and I felt safe, and I it was it was just great. You know, the the late eighties were were pretty heady time for soaps and, and the one you were on particularly. And you know, you were thrust into the spotlight and thrown immediately to hold your own with the heavyweights like uh, you know, Jim DePaiva and Fiona Hutchison and Andre Evans, Eric Slazak, a bit later on the great Jerry Anthony. That that first year, that first year and a half, was that a total blast for you creatively? On one life? I had such a good time. I mean, I have to say I just thought oh, my gosh, how did I get so lucky to land on this show? I just sort of felt like the more fun I had, the more they let me have fun. I mean, it just was almost as – because my character was an actress, that was what she did for a living, you know, uh-huh. she was an actress, they they just invented the craziest stuff for me to do. And I loved it. I mean, I just had so much fun. And, yeah, and it was like playing to go to work every day. I mean, truly, I felt like I'd hit the jackpot. And great people, and the Absolutely. soap, as you said, were sort of in their heyday at the time. Absolutely, um, and they weren't sort of struggling for viewership as they are now. Mm-hmm. It was great. You know, my understanding is that he has mellowed considerably lately. But back in the day, Paul Roush was quite intimidating to work for. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a good Paul Roush story. You know, Paul Roush. I think he had a really clear idea of how he wanted things to run. And he was really good. I mean, that man was brilliant. And, I, you know, I think he could be a little scary at times, definitely. Um, I remember during my screen test for the show, uh, he came down on the floor and he didn't like the earrings that I was wearing and he thought my hair was done too well. So he took my earrings off and he fluffed up my hair. And, you know, I was sort of, uh, we always had this sort of, I would punch him. You know, I would play with him. So I think his bark was worse, worse than his bite. I think he liked to run a tight ship, and he did a, a good job of it. And sometimes there would people would you know have get ruffled feathers. But I think that if you take a look at what happened under him at Absolutely. Life to Live, you'd see that he's really produced some great stuff. Um, and when you look at all the when you look at all the the oversized personalities that he had to manage during his time I, at that show, I mean it's really incredible yeah. to think of 
think of all the people who were on that show at that time. Yeah. And, I mean, honestly, someone's got to play the quote-unquote bad guy. I mean, when you think about it, you've got, yeah, all the personalities. It's a nice way of saying all the egos. I mean, crazy. I mean, you know, there were times, I think, when someone, you know, there had to be a referee that got out there and blew the whistle and was like, okay, people, you know, like, let's get it together and let's do our stuff. And so, you know, he he ruled with an iron, I was going to say an iron thumb. Is that right? Iron fist. Iron fist. I knew it, right? Thumb, fist. Look at me. (laughs) Somebody help me. Give me a break. (laughs) Um, that's so scary. Sure, I mean he was a he was a tough cookie, but honestly, a little poke and got him smiling. He was he was okay in the end, and I think he had a lot to manage, and you you know he had to run a tight ship if it was going to run at all. Mm-hmm. You know, talking about the Jessica Tuck years on One Life, I think it's fair to say that most fans remember two things most clearly: Megan's death, which we'll talk about in a sec, and the Daisy Awards. Did you guys have any idea when you were filming that episode what kind of splash it would make within the community within the industry? I don't I don't know that if we that we thought about the the kind of oh well, you know I should back up. I don't think the actors were thinking, "Ooh, I wonder what kind of splash this is going to have." I think they thought this is such a good idea. This is so much fun. And the thing that was great about it is that it aired I think literally the hour before yes. the Emmys. And is so, is it true that is it true that Paul came up with that to vent his frustration at not being nominated for any Emmys that year? Is that a true story or no? No, that I, that I don't know. I mean, the good thing, I, I have to say, quite honestly, I stayed out of the politics of of things. I really did. I mean, I I knew Paul as, I mean, he was tough cookie, but he was always very kind to me, you know. Um, I mean, sure, everybody gets into it with everybody. but um, And I'm sure there was all sorts of stuff going on, quote-unquote, upstairs, which is where all the writers were. Um, but, you know, for instance, um, Frank Valentini is one of my dearest friends, and he's now the executive producer of uh-huh. One Life to Live. He started as a production assistant when I was first there. I mean, the two of us became instant buddies, like, literally the first day. Wow. And then I watched him work his way up the ranks while I was there, and then I left. And since then, look, he's like this brilliant executive producer. Absolutely. And I know, without going into any details, all the stuff that he has to manage, it's Huge. It's not just about sort of putting a script together and, and, and shooting it. I know what he has to manage. And, you know, uh, because daytime is so under the gun right now, his job seems from the outside to be impossible. I mean, it just yeah. seems, no, it seems he, just I mean, backbreaking what he does. Yeah, and I'll toot his horn. I mean, I love him. I think he's brilliant, and he's such an incredibly compassionate, great guy. You know, he is just amazing. And I see how he struggles to, like, keep the balance of things. I mean, he works his behind off. And I am sure that there was a version of that going on under Paul Roush, under all of them, mm-hmm. and the writer. You know, the politics of it all is something we don't ever know the full story of things. So I'm sort of loath to kind of say, oh, well, Paul Roush did this because of that. I, don't, I really don't know. I do know that he was excited about doing the Daisy Awards, and I think he had a great time. And I think the fact that they aired the hour before the um, – Emmys was just sort of a brilliant thing. I, there were a couple of people who actually thought that, you know, some fans get very wrapped up in it all. Uh-huh. Oh, is this the Emmy? I mean, they got a little bit confused, you know. But what a great, it was a great way for us to kind of be tongue-in-cheek about certain things and take advantage of the, of the, of the format of the Emmys and just have a, a really good time with it. Um, and, you know, what, what, were there ulterior motives to Paul Roush's doing it I, I really don't know I mean honestly it's nothing that he would have ever discussed with me or that gotcha. I 
knew about gotcha. that. Well, it was still completely just uh, through the roof imaginative. I mean, it was it was so creative and so fun and such a blast to watch. You know, it, it's recently shown up on YouTube. People have been begging for it for years, and it finally showed up a couple months ago. And it was great fun going back and and watching you and 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 uh, Sharon Squire singing Sharon here Squire, here's to the yeah. shows again, and just uh, you know, a great great fun. Uh, well, I, I I really enjoyed it too. It was really fun. What brought you to the decision to leave One Life to Live? I mean. Uh, well, my contract was up. I mean, okay. quite literally, my, my contract was up, you know. And so I think that that's kind of like a birthday. Everybody reevaluates themselves every sure. year, or at least I do. I don't want to impose that on anyone else. But um, I think my contract was coming up, and I had to decide well, what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to ask, you know, to renegotiate and stay or, or to move on. And I think um, – and I actually gave an extra six months. I, I stayed an extra six months. And um, and then I just was really, I just was, I was curious, you know, curiosity. I, I, this is just the way that I am. I get curious about things. And I was courageous, a lot more honestly courageous back then than I am now. You know, like, I, if if it were now, I don't think I would have the, the guts to, to leave. Um, I mean, I'm twice as old as I was back then. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you're young and, and I wasn't married, I didn't have a boyfriend, I didn't have you know, pretty much any overhead. Now is the time to leap and, and to try and, and to try something else. Um, you know, that said, obviously, I've been back quite a few times mm-hmm. for, you know, an episode here or there or something. I mean, I love One Life to Live, um, and I, I love going back to visit. Uh, so it's not – I didn't leave because I didn't love it. I, I left because I just thought I should I should challenge myself more than anything. Wow. How vehemently did did Michael Malone and Linda Gottlieb try to talk you out of it? Um, did they did they try to talk you out well, of it? Well, I will tell you this: I actually I had to fight for my life with Linda Gottlieb. I mean, at one point, she wasn't sure that there was this odd period of time when <clears throat> Joe Lando left, and um, the show was still on the air. I, I can't remember exactly what the thing And there was sort of like a, a dip in what they were doing with Megan. They didn't quite know what to do with Megan, my character. And um, I, I'm not going to say almost got written off the show, but almost. I mean, I literally had to sort of convince uh, Linda Gottlieb that I was worth keeping on. So bizarrely enough, I almost bit the dust before the whole sort of Megan's death thing came around. Because she came on, because Linda Gottlieb came on and was doing a lot of house cleaning. Like, she mm-hmm. really wanted to change things. I mean, I think, of all the producers, I think, you know, in the end she did a, a great job. And I left. I wasn't there under her for that long. But she made a lot of changes. When oh, she you, know, they, they, you know, they came blazing onto this show determined to craft an entire new paradigm for it. I mean, Well, exactly. And I have to tell you, that was crazy. That was a really difficult time for a lot of us. And I also think... I mean, I don't know, and again, I'm speaking without knowing all the details or completely knowledgeably, which is probably a dangerous place to speak from, but oh well. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how much she had worked in daytime before. The daytime audience is very different. People are used to their people, you know? I mean, like, you you can't just obliterate the Buchanans. You can't can't just switch things around so much. People have gotten comfortable with people. Uh Uh-huh. It, it, we were sort of in shock. I mean, literally, we went in shock. Sometimes, 
I, I think people come with the best intentions, but they have to consider their audience. They have to consider the medium. And I, I was sort of surprised at some of the things that were going down. Now, honestly, I would have respected her decision if it was time to let me go. It would have been time to let me go. But um, I, I think I wasn't the only one that was a little shocked that she was questioning whether to keep me or not. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, let's do this. And then, you know, they came up with a list you know, Megan's death and all that Absolutely. stuff, and then things changed. But that was, if you want to talk about a tricky time, that <laughs> was a tricky time. That was definitely a tricky time. Were you were you absolutely flabbergasted by the promotional blitzkrieg that they staged for what they daringly called Scheherazade Week during the, during the week that Megan passed away? I mean, were you just, you were on every talk show, you were on, you were in every magazine. It was crazy, the, the, uh, the promotion they were able to get for that. It was, and again, I think part of it, was I don't think they would be able to do that today, and it, and I'm certainly not giving myself credit for that. I'm giving the 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 place that soaps had in the on the airwaves. You know, there was a lot less uh, content out there, and soaps had a soaps had a big audience. Oh sure, so, sure. You know, it's like I remember when Luke and Laura, and it certainly wasn't as big as the Luke and Laura fury. I mean, I remember Luke and Laura being on like the cover of Time Magazine, you know, when they did the Luke and Laura story, right? Weren't they on, like, Absolutely, they were. Absolutely. And Newsweek. And Newsweek, right. I mean, so, like, you know, think about News Blitz. I mean, that was just crazy. And and they did a lot with Megan, too. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, they had article in the New York Times. And, I mean, definitely. uh, I will say that I am not a big one. I, I, I got a bunch of wigs, and I used to... I used to wear wigs when I left the show. Like, I would disguise myself. I was a little freaked out by the um, all the attention. Seriously, it, I am a real people person. I love to sort of immerse myself into communities and get to know people and um, hear their stories. Uh, and if someone recognizes you, it changes the way they connect with you. I mean, all of a sudden... With that recognition comes all sorts of assumptions about you, all sorts of projections. Sure. And it's really hard to connect. And that's not to say that I didn't feel very lucky to have all of that publicity and that the storyline did so well. I mean, I honestly, I, I you know, I am very thankful for that. But I think that the loss of one's anonymity is huge. I mean, it's really huge. It's one of the things, <laughs> this is going to sound odd, but, you know, I'm sort of, happy that I never became some big, huge star because I am really thankful that I can walk my daughter to school every day and not worry about people following me. I mean, I feel, and I know there's a trade-off, but I can't imagine being someone that is so high in profile that they literally can't even walk their child to school Mm -hmm. in the morning. Mm -hmm. Or they could, but it's certainly not without an enormous amount of fanfare. Um, I feel like I sort of talked off. I'm not quite sure how I got to this. Oh, I know. You were asking about the publicity. Uh, it's it was fantastic and it was frightening. It was frightening. I mean, I there were people that came up to me in the street when Megan was dying and they'd say, "Megan, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're sick." Because you know it was winter at the time. Get back inside. And I was like, uh-huh. no, "No, no, it's okay. It's okay. I'm Jessica." And 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 you know, and I would do it sincerely. I wasn't. I didn't have any judgment about it. It's just that people get very wrapped up, and, 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 and look, I have my television shows that I watch, 
and I am really wrapped up in them too. And I think if I were to see one of the characters outside, I uh-huh. would have a moment of like, <gasps> and if I were to see the character every single day, I mean, you know, it's not just once a week, it's every single sure. day. For an hour. Be, for an hour. Yeah. And, you know, we do everything with them, right? We mm-hmm. change our clothes and eat our breakfast. I mean, you know, it's not like we're, we do everything with them. So, of course, that's who you think the person is. And quite frankly, we do sort of meld into our soap characters a tiny bit. They They become more and more like us because if you're living it 24 hours a day, you spend more time being your character than you don't. It's sort of hard to figure out who you are in the end. You know, that that was odd. I, I actually got sent a book by a woman, like this amazing woman who wrote a book on lupus. She was um, not a doctor, but a, a, some kind of um, in the medical profession. And she'd written a book on lupus, and she'd written a note in it saying, Dear Jessica, I hope this will help you in coping with your illness. Oh, my uh, God. You know, and, and, I, and I have to say, she wrote it to Jessica, so she was aware that I was Jessica, not Megan, uh-huh. but still, you know, sort of confused the whole thing. And that happens. Poor Andrea Ev- I think it was Andrea Evans. It was either Andrea Evans or Fiona Hutchinson, one of the two. I think it was Andrea like a fan. Oh, sure. She had a she had a stalker that was that was she stalking her at the studio. Right. Yeah, and somebody else cut her hair because they were angry at the way she was. You know, everyone's always getting angry at you. I got everyone got so mad at me when I dumped you know quote unquote Max James the Like, what are you doing dumping? <laughs> like, hey, you know, I actually have a real boyfriend in real life. <laughs> um, and again, love the fans, so appreciate their support, and I count myself amongst the people who blur the line sometimes, you know, uh-huh. get so involved in characters. But that, you know, it, it does mean that off-screen, you carry your on-screen persona yep. with you. You can't help it. And yep. that influences how people interact with you, and you lose that sort of um, level playing ground that's so nice to meet somebody. You know, it's so nice to meet when you both come without expectations uh-huh. of another I mean, we all come with expectations. The minute you see someone, you decide things about them. But I mean, you know, in a bigger way than you're a celebrity. She needs utterly no introduction, but please indulge me while I give her one anyway. An Emmy-winning television superstar, best known to an entire generation of soap fans as the irrepressible one and only Felicia Gallant on NBC's classic soap Another World, she spent some 25 years enthralling and entertaining audiences the world over, with her wacky, fun-spirited characters. She's built an entire second career for herself in the mid-90s when she brought a collection of fashion accessories to QVC in what was then a revolutionary concept, celebrities bringing their products directly to the home consumer. And two years ago, she shifted her focus to an enormously successful collection of home accessories and furnishings. She returns to QVC this coming Wednesday, September 30th, for a two-hour commemoration of her latest anniversary, and she's come by the buzz this evening to give us an exclusive sneak preview of what's in store. It is a genuine honor and a spectacular thrill to have this great lady on my show tonight. She is elegant. She is extraordinary. She is Linda Dano. I am absolutely speechless. <laughs> and that that takes some doing <laughs> to get me to, to be quiet. Uh, that was some intro. Well, you deserve Brandon, it, Brandon, thank you, you so it. much. You know, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, and this really is a great thrill to have you on the oh, show tonight. It's very nice to be here. Uh, you know, it's so interesting. It's so easy to talk to people that 
have a genuine love affair with life, you which is what you'd have. You, you're a, you're a, you're just, you're just out there. <laughs> so everything is is right in front of you. You're excited about it. You're passionate about it, and uh, that's why people listen. You know, you're still very well known as a daytime star. Do you miss that part of your life? Do you miss? Um, do you miss that daily? Uh, no, I don't. Um, it's interesting you ask that because I, uh, I thought I would, but. You know, when I retired from daytime, uh, Frank and I had plans to. Tr- we were going to. We had a trip planned, um, and uh, tickets bought, and the whole thing. And I was finally going to have time where I could, That's if fun. I wanted to stay somewhere for another two weeks, I could. No responsibility, and and um, and then Frank got sick, as you know, and uh, and so everything everything stopped. Sure. Um, and it was at that time that I probably would have missed the everyday, you know, routine. The the you get used to things, you know, and when they go away, it's like, whoa, what happened here? Uh, and it's like you have nowhere to go. But I did not feel that way because I was busy with Frank, and he was sick, Absolutely. and 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 so by the time um, my husband finally passed away, which was many many months later, and then I was I was really devastated and and the last thing i thought about was work you know it's interesting i went i did do guiding light after that sometime i think i did it in february um and frank had died in september and i did it because ellen called me ellen wheeler the exec producer and uh said i have a part that i only want you for and i really want you to think about coming and doing it and i went oh ellen i don't know i don't know if i can do this and she said i said and what happens to the character she said we kill we kill you and i went really you'll kill me i've never died before i might like that and that was a single reason i decided to do it and of course my my death scene was I made them give me blood in my mouth. I just really played the hell out of it. I mean, you know, with blood spewing out of my face. And I just had the best time. But it was hard for me. It was hard for me because I had done daytime after I'd come to New York mm-hmm. to be with Frank. And so daytime for me meant Frank. Wow. And um, when he wasn't here anymore, it made it hard for me to do that. Even though I knew everyone and I, you know, was, they were all just so great and so wonderful, the crew included everybody, it was hard for me. And so I've never looked back. I, I figured when Frank went, so did daytime. Good. And that was the end of that. You know, you mentioned Guiding Light. They, they ended their run just last week after 72 years. Oh, my God. This year marks a decade since another world went off the air. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, talk a little bit about what it feels like to lose such a constant part oh, of your life. I mean, it's you know, like losing—it's like losing your family. It's the saddest. It's like you don't lose just one person; you lose so many. A hundred people, hundreds of yeah. people, um, and you really do. That is how you feel such a loss. It's such a oh, I, I will never forget that day. You know, Stephen and I, Steve, Steve Schnetzer, we neither one have ever seen the last show. We always say we're going to just pour us, ourselves some, a lot of martinis and watch oh, it together wow. one night, but we never have because it's just too hard. It's when Brent Collins died on Another World that I thought I could never do this again because you just you you know these people. They're they're people they're as close to you as your family. Uh-huh. They are your family, and when 
and you, also also the people that we never get to see, like the oh, cameramen absolutely. and the makeup people, absolutely. And, you know, all the all the people absolutely. that we never see on TV. That's right. All those people, I, you know, I was the last one to leave the building in another world. Wow. And Vivian came to pick me up. Of course she did. And she was actually there. And so I went around to every single office and place in that studio and said goodbye to it. I'm such a drama queen, in case you didn't know that. <laughs> my husband at the time went, oh, my God, don't tell anyone that. But I did. I went to every single room. And cried and cried and cried and cried and cried all the way home and got, oh, I never stopped crying. That was just the saddest, most awful day. You know, you mentioned your old buddy Stephen. He's now the king of commercials. Every time Is I he doing TV, great or what? I swear I see his face or hear, hear that voice, oh, and you know that voice the instant you hear it. Yeah. Every time I turn on the TV, it's hilarious. It's how, hilarious. How is he doing? Is, is he he's doing, doing is he great. Doing well? He's doing theater. He's doing commercials. He's working. Oh. I am so, so, so excited for him. And his boy is working, Ben. Ben got a job. Ben is the one who wants to be an actor like his dad. He's the youngest. He has two sons. And Ben got a job in a pilot. I don't know if it has sold. I don't think it did, but but he got his first pilot. Wow. I was so thrilled. It's 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 good. It's come around. Because there was a time where, you know, he couldn't get a job. Uh-huh. Um, that, that's always what's so hard about... Um, about a show ending. And being so identifiable with one character. Yeah, and you, yeah. You, everyone thinks you're going to, oh, you'll go work. <laughs> Don't worry about it. You'll just absolutely work. And that isn't necessarily true. Wow. So um, I'm very pleased with his success right now. He's doing great. You know, He's like really I said, you, you hear that voice, you, you know that voice the instant you hear it. And it yeah, seems yeah. like every time you turn on the TV, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> isn't that great? Ching, 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 ching. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you know, God. Thank God. <laughs> you excelled in daytime television for something like 25 years, and, you know, you, you saw the highest of the highs, and you saw the lowest of the lows. Yeah. You know what works in this genre and what doesn't. I um, do. You know, the clock seems to be ticking down to zero hour for this form of television. And I, know. I know. I'm wondering, what, in your view, does it need to do to save itself? What it needs to go back to what it does best, and that's family. Family, relationships, romance. It needs to stop trying to do, you know, 24. It, it's got to stop that. It needs to. It needs to be. And I and I mean this across the boards. I don't. I don't mean because only old people watch it. Mm-hmm. I, I defy you that a young person or an old person and everybody in between will respond to real moments, real emotions, real pain, and real joy. It's who we are. We're human. That's what we do. And and it has nothing to do with your age. It has to do with what moves you. And it's a, it's a fascinating uh, genre because it has always done that. Mm-hmm. And people can make fun of it and they can say, oh, it's so silly. Uh, but it's not. Daytime is no different or shouldn't be than watching any... Brothers and Sisters, Grey's Anatomy. I mean, a great story is a great story is a great story. It's a great story, story. and everybody, absolutely, I I know that if you walk in a room and the TV is on and someone is doing real work, you hit real, you'll stop. Damn right. They they get you. I remember years ago, a hundred years ago, I was home 
in our very first apartment here in New York, Frank and I. And I and I was busy doing some stuff. In those days, I was selling clothes to a lot of the shows, and I was busy doing that. And all of a sudden, a scene came on with Kim Zimmer. Not funny that it's Kimmy. And and I walked past the TV. I stopped. She got me to sit down. Wow. I sat down and I watched this scene, and I thought, boy, it just doesn't get any better than that. And it doesn't. Because real stuff is real stuff. When I, when the new seasons come out for anything and I turn on a show, uh-huh. and if, I, if I'm distracted by it, if somebody distracts me or, or I look at a magazine, you, you've, you've missed me. You've lost me. There's something lacking. And I don't think it's any harder than that, although I think that is hard to do. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? But I don't think it's any harder. I don't think you need shoot 'em ups and, and rapes and muggings. and I don't think you need any of that. I just think you need actors who can pull off good writing and 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 make you care. Absolutely. And they'll come back every day when they care. And that's what I think is missing. I really do mean that. I think it's missing in any consistent way. You'll see bits and pieces, but it takes too long between those bits mm-hmm. and pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you've been very brave and very open about the great losses that you've suffered in the past several years and how those losses have affected you. Right. And, I, you know, I'm wondering, you're a woman who's always been known as a happy, smiling, joyous woman. Right, right. W- was it hard for you to come forward and speak openly and frankly yeah. about your depression? Yeah, it was. I, I couldn't understand why they would want me. It's like, I'm really depressed. I don't think you want me to be your spokesperson. Um, I remember the first um, meeting we actually had, which was a phone meeting um i was on a phone and then there were three or four executives from um from the the pharmaceutical company and there was somebody else and then vivian and and i and i in the middle of chatting or talking they asked me to tell what happened i'd start to cry and i'd have to say just a minute just a minute and i i got off the phone and i said i I, vivian i i can't do this i i i can't i can't go and i can't talk about this it's just too hard for me. And um, and she said, well, I want you to think about it because maybe it's the thing that will save you. Mm-hmm. And you know what? She was right. It did save me. By me speaking and talking about it, getting others to talk about their pain, I started to, uh, I don't know, I started to understand it a little more. I understood that what had happened, why I suddenly went from being very sad and in, and in a mourning state and had triggered something in myself that made it an illness. Because that's what depression is. It's an illness. It's not, it's not just, oh, gee, I had a bad day, or God, I gained five pounds and look, this dress doesn't fit me. It's a real illness that cripples you and gets its horrifying hands around your throat and just almost chokes the life out of you. And if you and know so, it's an so illness. So few people really understand it. I mean, right, so they don't. Really because it. I come from the background, oh, for God's sakes, get up. Snap out of it, pull yeah. Your, snap out of it. Pull your, pull your, pull your, what's this, Mabel? What are you eating here? Oh, she's eating, a, oh, Christ. She's eating leaves. Okay, let's change this. Sorry, Brandon. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, yeah, pull your bootstraps up and get on with it. Absolutely. What's the matter with you? I wish it were that simple. And I come from that. I come from that, and I'm proud that I come from that. I come from very, very hardworking, simple people who worked hard all their lives and, and you know, raised 
children and and took care of their families and but that's the school they come from and that is not anything about what depression is about it's just not it, it that's why it was so strange for me to be depressed was i was the last person on the planet that you would pick as someone depressed sure because i'm you've goofy. always got a smile on your face you're always I do. happy you're always you know, i'm out always there. happy i'm always goofy i always i never look at the negative I always look at the positive side of life, always have. I'm just goofy and happy. And suddenly, I wasn't any of that anymore. I didn't know who I was, and I didn't care. That was the thing. See, I, in my life, I've always been so joyful, and suddenly I had no joy. And the thing that I finally understood and recognized was it wasn't because my husband had died. It was because... I had done something to my brain, really, you know, in the balance of a human body mm-hmm. that altered my thinking and my my whole emotional being was affected. So I went from mourning and tragedy and sadness and crying into something that was scary, really scary, really, really scary. And I remember thinking back then, oh, such a dark time for me, thinking about Jerry Anthony. Do you remember Jerry Anthony, who played uh, Marco Dane? Oh, sure. On One Life. Remember yeah. him? He was on Another World for a time? Absolutely. He, he was also a director, a very gifted guy, really, really great. You know, some people call him the finest actor that's ever been on, yep. on Daytime no, Television. No, this was people... a really good actor. And he killed himself. A um, few years back, and I remember thinking, how could he do that? Why and would all of his all of his friends were just flabbergasted by it because flabbergasted. You know, he was he, the last person, yeah. just like you. He was the last person yeah. you would expect that anyone would expect that. Absolutely. And after I went through this illness and grappled with it and tried everything I knew and everything that I was told to do and did it, and really spoke out about it, and I I apologized to him one night. I'll never forget it. I was sitting in my, my apartment here in New York, and I thought about him, and I said, I am so, so sorry. I had I had no idea back then why you would do such a thing, and now I understand it. Now I get it. Wow. Because the pain is so enormous, and it's so overwhelming mm-hmm. that you want the pain. It would be like having a really bad toothache and not being able to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. It's like that. And unless you're there, unless you understand that, you don't know. And you can't pull yourself up. It's not about that. So, yes, it was probably, I have said, since I did that campaign, um, it, it's probably the, the single greatest thing I ever did, was talk about that and help people. In Folks can be tricky minefields for actors to try to navigate, and so few actors are lucky enough or maybe just good enough to nab one signature role in daytime, let alone two. But get ready to meet a terrific man who miraculously managed to defy those odds. Depending on which network you happen to watch in the 80s and 90s, he's either best remembered as true blue good guy Michael Hudson on NBC's classic Another World, or as lovelorn sharkish attorney Sam Rappaport on ABC's One Life to Live. And he's come by the buzz tonight to talk about all of this and about so much more. What a great thrill and a huge honor to welcome to my show tonight the funny, the fascinating, Kale Brown. 
My God, I feel like I should be Mariah Carey. <laughs> How are you doing this morning, sir? I'm doing very well, thank you. What would you What would you call your big break? What was the thing that kind of set you on your path definitively? I mean, there's there's breaks and there's breaks. Um, I would say that that certainly uh, the you know I. You know, it's funny you ask that. I was actually, uh, of course, Another World was really what sure. um, put me on the map as far as the first regular job I think I'd ever had. But I had always said to myself that soap operas, you only do that at the end of your life. I mean, I, I had some kind of theatrical uh, ego that said, well, you don't do soap operas. That's, and uh, so I, I really never wanted to do one. And... Uh, I actually was in Brazil doing a, a film that uh, never got shot. Um, it was supposed to be about Halley's Comet, which uh, passed uh, while we were sitting there in Brazil waiting to shoot. And uh, I got back to Los Angeles, and uh, I never wanted to move back to uh, New York either. First thing that happened was uh, was I got uh, they asked me to go in and read for uh, Days of Our Lives. And uh, I thought, okay. So I went in and read with Deirdre and had a great time. Wow. Do you, do you remember the part? Yeah, it was uh, Drake. Oh, well, I mean, it was, wow. It was, it was uh, John Black, I think, was wow. the, what they were calling him at the time. Okay. And Drake and I have stayed, uh, actually, we tested together and we stayed uh, friends this the whole time because it was very weird. I get a call about a week later. I knew I'd, I'd done well. I just had this gut feeling, but... No call, no call. I was uh -huh. doing an episode of something else, and then I get this phone call, would you do a soap in New York? And I thought, well, I guess, you know. And, <laughs> and, and the great thing was is the the uh, casting director for um, uh, had remembered me from a screen test from years before and saw the screen test for Days of Our Lives. Uh, I guess NBC, they all share the same stuff. Uh -huh. And I, they, they said, you want to, you know, so I flew to New York. I auditioned on Monday. I got the job on Tuesday, and I started working on Wednesday. And uh, it was January, and it was cold. Wow. But uh, that was the start. And I thought, look, if this last six months and I get to pay off my visa card, I'll be one happy puppy. <laughs> Amen. I had no idea what I was walking into, not a clue. And by the grace of God, I walked into the greatest group of people. You know, Anna Stewart, to work with her, like one of God's gifts, you know, I, I and she just, we had, we still do. I mean, we're still great friends. She's just the most wonderful human to work with. It just took off uh, all on its own. I had no idea, you know, and I had no idea that, you know, about, I had no idea about any of it. I thought you were, I mean, I felt like after a while, I went from like working a day here and a day there uh -huh. to all of a sudden, you know, working all the time and doing appearances and stuff, and I thought that was normal. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I didn't have any, if I had a day off, I thought they were firing me. Uh, Plus, just just getting used to the mere grind of, of daytime. I mean, here you are doing a show a day. I used to go home at night and weep because they'd give me another script for the next day. <laughs> and I think, oh, my God. You know, I mean, in a, in a film, if you do a third of a page a day, that's yep. a lot. Uh -huh. in, a, in a sitcom, you get rehearsal. I mean, it's a half hour. It's 20-some-odd pages. You get rehearsal every day for a week, and then you go in and you get a couple of things. This... I mean, there were some days where Anna and I, when it was when we were at our top there, our peak, sometimes we'd have a hundred pages of dialogue a day. What happened was, is we were working such insane hours, they had money to burn. Then we'd work until literally we had midnight mail. One of the directors, 
we didn't get out of there before midnight. We started at 7 o'clock in the morning, and, you know, you'd start out, you'd meet the car at 6 o'clock. Um, so it was long days. We'd be there regularly till 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. One morning, we ended at 4. I went home and slept for one hour, came back, and I looked at the script, and it said, I, I hadn't even looked at it before, and, and, and I, I thought, oh, great, only 10 scenes. And I read it once, and we taped it. And I thought, you know what? I was worried about remembering my lines, but it's the worry that pushed them right out of my head. It's amazing what your brain can do when you ask it. Absolutely. Uh, I get very adept. There were other people who actually had different techniques, uh, like uh, writing it on um, their hands <laughs> or, or, or actually plates. Um, there, there were people at all kinds. Because, you know, after a while when you're doing this day after day after day, your brain's going, wait a minute, didn't I just say that? Haven't I been here before? Um, it was, it, it's a bizarre experience. And, and, and on folks, you, you probably did already say that, and you probably, you probably had already been there before. Well, you know what? I'll tell you, Brandon, the, the, the key is if you feel like that, you know, snap out of it because you've never been there before. Yeah. And, it, I mean, I always felt like if I'm not interested, I will not be interesting. So I better be interested in what I'm doing every single day. Every, and my job is to make everything new. Right? I mean, because mm -hmm. otherwise, you know, we all know what we're looking at. It's five days. Writing a show like that is so hard because you've got you've to fill an hour and not go anywhere. It's, it's the hardest work I've ever done. I mean, believe me, there's no harder job. The only people who've ever made fun of soap operas have never done one. You bet. I'll tell you flat out. You betcha. And it, it helps if you're half out of your mind. <laughs> You know, because it works great. Um, uh, you got to be able to, like, uh, you know, you got to be able to sit and then, you know, pull it up really quick. Uh huh. You know, the soap actors work really hard. You know, you mentioned the long hours on Another World. I got a chance to talk to Judy Evans some time ago, and she said the exact same thing. She said the hours on Another World were twice as long as any other show she's ever done, and she wasn't quite sure why. It just, it just worked that way for some reason. And you know, she would talk about how. Sometimes they would start at 7 a.m. and not finish until 7 a.m. the next morning. And, and you know that's right. We walked from Studio A into we had two studios back then into Studio B and start up the next show. <laughs> and that, crews that working around the clock, working on sets, and and yeah. you know getting everything together. And it, it was it was amazing the the work you guys pulled off with with the uh, with the amount of money that you didn't have. Another world was kind of like, hey, I got a barn. Oh, I got a camera. Let's make a soap. <laughs> I mean, it was really, it felt like that, but it was always about the work. Once you got down to the floor, you know, whatever personal, whatever stuff was going on, and, you know, it, you're all, like, on that lifeboat together. I mean, there's no one, there's nothing else out in Brooklyn. I mean, trust me, you're underground. You go in when it's dark. You come out when it's dark. These, this is your family. On the floor, it was always about the work. I mean, that's the one thing that was, uh, I remember being always able, I was able to rely on that. And we yeah. had a lot of fun on the floor because there's no prompters. Sure. So you'd go, you'd go skating. I'd get out there sometimes with Tommy Eplin, and it was like surfing. And <laughs> you'd lose what the hell you were talking about. It would go off somewhere, and you'd skate around, and, and all of a sudden we'd wind back up on track, and we'd get done with that scene, and yes, we nailed it. And you knew. There was a moment in time there where that scene, would, neither of us had a clue what, what we were talking about. That fascinates me. What was it about that show that almost nobody had a bad working experience there? I mean, you hardly ever hear anyone who was on that show 
in any significant capacity, talk about what a horrendous experience it was. I think that's because we were there for each other. And it, it comes from the top, for sure. But there was that element of, you know, the only time I ever really knew I was on TV is like when I'd be walking down a street and I'd see a, there'd be a, a, you know, a store window full of televisions and the show would be on. And I'd <laughs> see myself up there and I'd think, oh, right, other people look Yeah. <laughs> I mean, otherwise, you know, and there's something about New York where you're actors. There's not a lot of personalities going on there. Uh-huh. You know, you're really there for the work. And there was always this great work ethic at, at Another World where it was always about doing the best work. And so we'd help each other. There was, you know, it was, it was just like that. And I thought, that, you know, they were all like that. They're not. In the last few years, there was, there was continual turnover in the executive suite at Another World. And I'm just wondering how you guys managed to keep up the morale in the face of such ridiculous odds and such, I don't know, seeming network and corporate indifference. Interesting question. It, it, it was like a revolving door there. Uh, I think I must have had, I don't know, eight or nine over the course of time I was there. And, you know, actually, uh, John Valenti I'm still friends with, uh, Jill Phelps I'm still friends with. I mean, there's there's uh, a lot of them that are John Weitzel. Um, uh, you know, you, it, there was a bonding that went on there, and it, it was we had each other. I mean, it was kind of like, I'm sure, what they must go through in Washington when you change president. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's some people who are there through all of it. They've been uh-huh. there through 27 presidents, and they're still, you know, prop them up, and they keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and we had each other. It's, it's pretty much that simple. It's so funny that you, that you say that, and I've heard several people say, you know, you're out in Brooklyn in the middle of nowhere, and I'm wondering how this, this studio that you guys filmed in, how that came to be there in the middle of nowhere. I mean, how, how did it come to exist? Do you have any idea? Oh, yeah. I mean, they used these studios. Actually, under Studio B um, was this, uh, you could, if you banged on the floor hard enough, you could hear it was hollow. They used to, uh, there's a, a huge, um, like, they used to float ships in there. Um, these were silent film studios, two side by side, one of which had become a school. There was still an underground passageway that connects the two, I heard. Oh, my um, God, you're kidding me. No, this went back that far. Wow. Um, and then so the, the, the roofs uh, used to roll back and let sunlight in, and the, uh, the, uh, the floors used to come out to float boats in. And uh, then NBC bought them and uh, kind of papered over everything. And, and uh, you know, there you have it. And wow. for a while there, uh, we used both studios. Then Budget Cuts, we shared the studio with Cosby for a while. Okay. Um, it's a great studio. You know, you had three amazing and completely different women playing your daughters throughout the course of the show, and they all ended up doing magnificent work, and you did magnificent work with them. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about working with a very young Ellen Wheeler, uh, a fresh-off-the-farm Anne H., and the glorious Jensen Buchanan playing playing Vicky and Marley. <laughs> well, actually, I worked with four. Um, there was another one in there that uh, uh, was short-term. Okay. I don't know if you recall. I don't recall um, that at all. I don't recall her name, unfortunately. Um, uh, she was very sweet, but uh, it didn't click. Uh, that was right after Ellen, I think. Um, Ellen was so incredible to work with. Ellen was truly um, frightening in her um, ability to completely skits out on the daughters. And the only way I could tell, actually, who was playing whom, because there were times when you had Vicky pretending she was Marley to uh-huh. find out what Michael really thought. And, you know, you get on there, and, and the only way I could tell was I, could, I would look at her feet, because 
when she was playing Marley, she was pigeon-toed. And when she was playing, isn't that something? And when she was Vicky, her her feet were out. And so I thought if I ever got confused about which one I was talking to, I just had to look down. <laughs> she was, you know, she was remarkable. She's a wonderful actress, and a really nice human being. And and uh, and Annie uh, uh, Hayes was uh, just a kick in the pants. She was, uh, you know, literally. I think uh, she was. 17, 18, I mean, the child when she first got the uh And this was her job. first major job, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think she came right from uh, Hooterville. And, uh, uh, <laughs> Literally. Uh, she was uh, she was great. I mean, she came on and she just grabbed that sucker like it was, you know, with both hands and never let go, and it was her part. And the same with Jensen. You know, I mean, it's, it's truly incredible. You know, one of the things that you get to do when you have a running part like that is, I remember auditioning um, uh, a pile of people over the course of time, and rarely do you get the chance to be there and watch a lot of different people come in and audition for the same part. Usually you're the auditioning, right? Um, and and to watch people, like when I tested people for to replace Anna Stewart at one point or tested people. I mean, I remember doing the test, uh, Eddie Fry, Robert Kelker Kelly, there was a whole pile of people that wound up getting different parts, auditioning for something, and, and it's just uh, unbelievable. But when somebody comes in and owns it, there's no question. You yeah. just know. And that's what they did. That's what the, the, all, all three girls did. I mean, Jensen was fabulous. And, uh, you know, real classy. I mean, uh, uh, just a whole different uh, animal. Each one their own. You know, Jensen was amazing, and she had the thankless role of, of following up Anne H., who was like a firecracker. It must have been so tough for her. That first year or year and a half, getting her bearings on this show and following up Anne H. All three women had such um, a, a kind of a natural sense of who they were, or who they were bringing in. You mm-hmm. know, who these characters were, and the 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 cast itself. There was no opposition. I mean, we were only there to help each other. There was no lack of help. I mean, if you needed support, it was there. So really. You know, it was seamless. I mean, I don't remember there it being diff- uh, a difficult adjustment at all for any one of them, except the one whose name I can't remember. <laughs> she had a rough time with it. Speaking as somebody who was there, what did that show lose when Doug Watson died? In some ways, was that was that the beginning of the end of the show, in some ways? No. The thing is about shows like this, as you've seen, uh, uh, they just keep rolling, no matter what. But... When Dougie passed, I remember the day. I mean, uh, that was truly a very sobering uh, moment there. Um, He was a great guy. He was such a wonderful actor, and he just kind of, he he had this, I mean, between me and you, he would, when we would do these uh, cluster events where we do the big family thing, Uh and uh, if he didn't have any lines and he was just supposed to be basically kind of uh, there wandering around being Mac in the background, he'd basically find an, a door and walk out and leave, <laughs> right? But when he had stuff to do, I remember when Carmen Duncan came on the show, and he uh-huh. had, this is right before he died, actually, he just was, came up with some, he, he was just the most wonderful actor. He could pull it out, pull out all the stops, and just, just drop you right where you were standing. He was great. And that was, a, it, it changed the character of a lot of things. But then you have to remember that it, it opened the door for Charles Keating. Sure, absolutely. Right? And then and that was a whole different show. I don't know what it must have felt like from the audience standpoint, because, you know, I, I didn't have a history of, of, 
I didn't know the show before I got there, other yeah. than it had a reputation for having wonderful actors. So, I, I, you know, that wasn't what... The demise of the show was all, you know, politics. It was all network politics. Sure. I mean, they would any show would die now for the numbers. I remember they. Oh, show, no they question saying, about it. Oh, if we ever get to an eighteen, you know, we'll <laughs> we'll we'll be off the air. You know, <laughs> now they're happy with the two. Yeah. So, uh, it, it, you know, it's so funny that Days of Our Lives is is I don't know uh, hovering around a three or so, and and they're thrilled with it because it's actually come up from where it's been in the past year. And if you look at if you look at that versus where Another World was when it went off the air. To say nothing of when it was at its peak, but when it went right. off the air, it was you know still pulling in monster ratings. We're talking about five or six million people that they pulled, that they threw up for Absolutely. grabs when they took that show off the air. Loyalty, another world audience to this day. I get stopped, you know. I mean, the another world people were like no other people, and you know, oddly enough, we were huge in Canada because when uh, they first started. I think they only got Edge of Night and Another World. I think those are the only two soaps Canadians got for a long time there. So there were generations of people who were like, we had a 60 share up there. And I mean, I was up there almost every weekend doing appearances. Sometimes you get 10,000 people showing up. You know, it was it was just unbelievable. In the U.S., it was pocketed a little. You had to go to certain like certain parts of the country, mm-hmm. and it would be big there. But the loyalty was just jaw dropping. You know, they they got it. There was something really special about that whole experience, I must say. You know, I, I know that you're close friends with Jill Farron Phelps, and she literally gave Another World one of the best years of its life when she was its executive producer. Yes, um, she did. You know, if, if you go online, you find pretty quickly that even if the emotion is sometimes misplaced, fans either love or loathe her. You know, there's not a lot of middle ground in terms of the audience, but actors almost universally adore her. And, right. you know, I'm just I'm wondering if you can talk to me about working for her. What is her genius? I'll tell you exactly what it is. I can tell you uh, two things. She was the first executive producer. I had never wanted any contact with anybody in the offices. A, because, you know, <laughs> kind of like uh, you didn't know how long they were going to be there. But B, you know, you're an actor and you don't, you know, I mean, they're, they're, the, they're the suits. But we started when she took over. There was that period of time where you, you don't know. You're getting these old kind of scripts that have been you know, maybe not carefully looked at, all of a sudden we start getting these scripts where there is no scene that you're involved with that you're not there for an absolute reason. I mean, there's nothing where you're just killing time. Everything was motivated. Everything had a, you had a reason for being in your scene. And I thought, holy cow. So I sent her a note and said, hey, I've never done this before, but this is amazing. And I had no idea who she was. Uh And then we had a storyline going on at one point where Dave Forsyth uh, was, uh, uh, you know, sick. Uh, had John was, I don't know, going out with something. And um, uh, it gave all the actors um, the opportunity to go in and have their, their Emmy scene by his bedside um, before he, you know, he left into toast. And uh-huh. I went in and I had this, you know, this thing, this monologue where I'm talking to his body. We we do the rehearsal, and then we t- take a break. And we get notes. I come back into the scene, and as I'm doing the scene for tape, he starts to gasp for air, and all of a sudden, I got it. Just it just kicked me in. I thought, He's going to die, and 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 all of a sudden, it just took that scene that I had been doing, and made it ten times. I mean, it just. 
it, it, it involved me. It got made it real right in the moment. I mean, I was crying at the end of it, and, and then we get done. And I said, Dave, why did you do that? What, what the hell, yeah. Made... yeah. And he said, Jill came over and whispered in my ear to do it. And I thought, I love this woman. I love this woman. You know, that she, she knows actors. She can say a word. She can give you the kind of food that you need, you know, and, and, and run with. It's really, she loves actors. I mean, she has respect for the process. And to be trusted like that, for to, for somebody to know you well enough to know, all you got to do is just give them a little and, and they can run with it. I mean, that was it for life. As far as I was concerned, there wasn't, there's nobody better. She did some amazing things on that show, and to my eye at least, and I know I'm kind of in the in the minority on this, but to my eye, Another World's Fate was sealed the minute she was fired. I, I know that that show went on to last another three years or so, but in some ways you look at it from the outside and you go, well, you know, if she can't make it work and she's the best in the business, can anybody make it work? She made it work too well. I got stopped. I mean, you know, you get you get after doing it for a long time, you kind of know what it's what what your experience out in public is like. You know, the amount of people that stop you over the course of time. When the Charlene, John, um, uh, Michael, that whole thing was going on, I can't. Our numbers were way up, but I can't tell you how many more people on the street would stop me to say, "My God, this is just great." I mean, it was it was at least double, and I thought, "Wow, there's really something special going on here." It really tapped into something. I think sometimes, you know, having the most successful show may not be everyone's goal. I don't know. Because it was, it was, she was the best. You know, it was kind of clear that NBC wanted one thing, Procter & Gamble wanted one thing, and Jill wanted one thing, and they couldn't kind of get their goals to mesh. That's one way of putting it. I, I don't know what that, I mean, how did, how did it look, what did it look like? Did it look like, what do you mean P&G had one goal and NBC had another? That was... The the same period of time where Days of Our Lives was on fire in the ratings. I mean, they had they had the ratings momentum in all of daytime, and it it, it seemed as though NBC wanted a great companion piece to Days of Our Lives, which was kind of it was you know it was it was great soap opera in its own way, Days, but it was mindless. I mean, it was you know it was escapist. It was it was you know an hour of fun, and then you would pick up another world at, at, at 1 o'clock there following days, and it was, you know, very adult, very gritty, very intense, you know, soap opera the way it used to be. It was, it was a complete mismatch in terms of their schedule, and it seemed like NBC wanted a more compatible companion piece to days, and instead of throwing something new on the air, they wanted another world to kind of transmogrify itself into something more like days, something more escapist, something easier to digest. That's so and interesting. That's not, that's not what Jill does. That's not, that's not Jill's bailiwick. I never never thought of it like that, you know, because I know it from the inside. I know what the, the skinny around the, you know, what they're talking about around the, the in the dressing rooms and stuff, sure. and that's um, that never occurred to me. But uh, you may have a, a real point there. I I, I really don't know. Um, it it seemed, however, that the writing was on the wall when Jill was fired. From there on, it was downhill. They eviscerated the show. That's when they tanked uh, the whole Hudson family. Mm-hmm. They just started making uh, what I thought was pretty unwise moves. Absolutely. You know, the the rather, I don't know, ignominious way that your time ended there, did, did any of that leave at all a sour taste in your mouth about the experience as a whole? 
No. I mean, it left a sour taste in my mouth about the way <laughs> you have no idea. You know, there's a, it's not an apocryphal story. It's actually a true story um, of uh, an actor coming on the set one day. And the way it used to be in another world is because you'd have carps, uh, carpenters working on the set as you were rehearsing in the morning. They'd be working on the set for later on in the day down at the other end. And you'd have to tell the cars that, you know, stop hammering so you could shoot your scene. So one morning, we all come in, and, and they're already, um, you know, by mid-morning, they're already, they're, they're, they're shooting something else, a screen test, at the, at, in the first set, and we're working on the far set. And one of the other actors said, um, uh, what are they screen testing for down there? And uh, the AD had to tell him his part. He didn't know he'd been recast. Wow. Um, a lot of times they'll wait until um, you've shot your last scene that day and then tell you, you don't come back. Um, it, it's brutal, you know, wow. um, showbiz. So the, the way it came out for me was I actually found out through the rumor mill. Somebody mentioned it to me, I, and I was shocked. I thought, you're kidding. Uh, it turns out that no, um, <laughs> indeed. Uh, and then they said, well, would you stay off contract? And I said, yeah. Sure enough, actors act, and so I stayed on off contract for a while until my um, until I uh, you know went off the cliff and and then I woke up on ABC. So <laughs> uh, for me, it didn't work out all that bad. As a matter of fact, I always felt like I got the first lifeboat, um, you know, off the sinking ship. <laughs> you know, I, literally, I was on the air opposite myself there uh, for a couple of shows. Um, because I left a, I remember coming back and taping a video um, farewell because uh, I'd hand carved a, a cradle out of a bar of soap or something for Vicky or Marley, and um, uh, you know leaving this this and and it was airing while I was starting on One Life to Live, um, so literally um, I didn't have much downtime between the two and uh, was grateful for that. Uh, I've always felt extremely lucky that uh, it occurred like that. And, you know, I, and I certainly wasn't the first. As a matter of fact, a lot of people just seem to have continually gone from show to show. Because uh -huh. um, it's, 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 a, it's a talent or it's a technique. It's a, all unto itself. There's nothing else like it. You get people who do film, I, and I've watched it happen a million times, walk onto a soap set, and they gag. They go, you do this every day? I mean, With no rehearsal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you you walk on a tape? I mean, and, and you know, they, they just don't, it doesn't compute. Yeah. You know, and we used to have, well, like, when I first started, we had 12-page scenes. You know, it was prior to MTV or right around the same time, so mm -hmm. they hadn't quite gotten to the short, you know, versions they have now. You don't have very long scenes like you used to have. But uh, the scenes used to be like you were running live. I mean, you just kept going. If you got lost, that's what the whole thing was. If you got lost, you just um, you kept out there until somebody said cut or until you found your way back. Um, it, it was like really, uh, it was just just this side of live television. You know, I was listening to an interview with, with Marge Doucet back in the spring, and, and she was talking about how in some ways soaps are like the last great American repertory theater. I mean, it's this troupe of actors who, <clears throat> you know, go out there and put on a show every day, literally. That's right. And that's why you depend on each other. I mean, there's no one else. There's no one who knows what it's like. There's no one who you have to depend on, but you, you, you become very, very tight. 
because you're you're turning out. You know, you you think about it. I mean, uh, you get nine days or ten days on a on a one hour nighttime to to shoot that sucker. You've got uh, a week to do a half hour sitcom, and you've got one day to do sixty minutes or fifty minutes of usable television. I mean, it's a it's a prodigious feat. You know, talk to me about daytime in general. I mean, they've been trying to kill AM radio for 50 years now, and it's still around. And they've been saying for years that, that soaps are on the ropes, and they're still chugging. But it feels like it's getting pretty scary out there for daytime television, with only, you know, seven soaps left standing and rumors swirling about no fewer than two of those. As someone who's excelled in this genre multiple times and for lots of years, what does this genre need to do to save itself, in your view? What, what do you think? Boy, that, that has been the topic of many discussions, and I, I don't know whether or not it's simply an anachronism of an earlier time. I think that it's, you know, you know people are now geared into MTV kind of editing mm-hmm. and uh, r- r- the, the rapid pace uh, of you know, quick cuts, and, you know, soaps were, you know, used to have 14-page scenes, I mean, just talking and talking. So people's attention span, um, you know, people are geared for something that moves much more quickly. I don't know whether or not you can have that much happen five days a week. You know, if you're if you're only doing 20 shows or 22 over the course of a season, then you can have a very fast-moving hour, right? Mm-hmm. But soaps, by definition, take a lot more time. I mean, you just can't possibly have that much material. You know, uh, what you can do in, um, you know, you you have to drag a story out for a long time. <laughs> and there's just no room for that anymore, I don't think. So, I, you know, I, 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 I don't think the prognosis is necessarily good, but I would hope some other scripted fare comes up to uh, replace it, you know. Um, I mean, oh, I've always been in love with the novellas, you know, the the uh, the... Uh, Spanish shows, you know, the idea that, uh, which is really, truly a repertory theater, and that uh, you do these arcs where, you know, one arc, you're the the maid, and the, the next arc, you're the diva, you know. You, you switch parts, change parts, make it interesting for both the audience uh, and you. Um, and it moves much more quickly because, the you know, there's these arcs that don't last very long. I think they tried that on a number of shows, doing these out-of-context, completely weird arcs and stuff. I don't know if they've been successful. I mean, I, I guess if they had been, they'd be doing more of them. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, it's time maybe winding down. You know, you know I was talking yeah. with, I had, I had Pam Long in here, like I told you, and I was talking with her about this. And, you know, w- what I was telling her was, in some ways, a big part of the problem is that primetime television was able so brilliantly to take the the, the basic tenets, the hallmarks of the soap form. I mean, the the continuing plots, the cliffhangers, the evolving characters and relationships, they were able to take that and adapt it just enough and put them into these great cool shows like NYPD Blue and Grey's Anatomy and, you know, all these great shows. They were able to take the basic form and adapt it and make it exciting. And in in some ways, they've made soaps kind of irrelevant. Because if you can get your soap fix at night watching these great shows and watching these interesting shows, what's the point of, you know, turning well, on your TV at, at 1 in the afternoon and watching One Life? That's- that's exactly uh, what I'm talking about. The fact is, is all like a show like Grey's um, and Adam is nothing but uh, a compressed, you know, six months on a soap. Sure. It's all nose hair shots. You know, you're right in somebody's face. Uh, 
you're you're interested in. Uh, I remember when uh, when uh, uh, what was the, the, the show about the president? Uh, oh, the West Wing. West Wing came on. It was just a brilliant soap. First episode, you knew who everybody was. You knew what the relationships were. It was immediate. And, you know, you didn't tune in that show, just like Grace. You don't turn in to watch surgery. You know, you you, you tune in to watch what the people are going through mm-hmm. while they're doing all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what a soap is. A soap is watching what people are going through while they're going through whatever it is that's happening. So the thing that you can do with a one hour when you're doing 22 hours a year as opposed to 300 hours a year is you can compress it all down. And so a lot happens in the course of that hour. It's exactly the same thing, okay, just uh, uh, condensed. So you're right. I mean, in, in keeping with that mindset that, that, that we need things to happen more quickly, mm-hmm. what the nighttime shows are, are a reflection of that exact, you know, ethic that it happens now. It happens quickly. You see her go through something, and then the end of the show, you're left with, oh, my God, what's going to happen? <laughs> it's absolutely. Absolutely. And that's it, guys. I thank you for coming back here and listening to my Thanksgiving night encore. I wish you all a happy Thanksgiving one more time. Uh, quickly, in case you don't know, I want to tell you how you can find the show and how you can find uh, the full versions of the three excerpts that you just heard. Uh, Mission Control for Brandon's Buzz is blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. From there, you can listen to the show. You can download old shows. You can listen to old shows. You can leave comments. You can send emails. It's, you know, I welcome any and all feedback from all my fans, all my listeners, and uh, I appreciate you guys who take the time to, uh, you know, drop me in line and let you know what you you think. And you can do that at blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. And I want to tell you quickly that you can find Linda Dano in the September archives, you can find Jessica Tuck in the October archives, and you can find Kale Brown in the November archives. And all three of those uh, conversations are uh, from, range from an hour to an hour and a half in length, and uh, they are, you know, they are very interesting conversations. As I, as I said at the top of the show, we talk about more than just soaps in these conversations. I pulled out the the, the soap highlights just to create, you know, kind of a, a Thanksgiving night special here. But but the full conversations cover much more than just soaps. And if I do say so myself, they are well worth uh, a listen. And so if you haven't heard the, the full versions of what you just heard tonight, uh, please, by all means, check them out, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There's a full radio archive. Just click on the blue radio button at the very top of the page. Uh, that will take you to a page where you can see all of my guests listed by date. You click on each date. That takes you to a page where you can see the great banners that my pal Joanne makes to help me advertise the show and you can listen to the corresponding show. Uh, so that's at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. I'm on iTunes as a podcast. Uh, just uh, type in Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on my logo from there. You can download individual old shows as podcasts and listen to them on the device of your choosing. Or you can subscribe to the show and have each new episode automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the music store. Uh, so, uh, listen, I'm all over the Internet. There's no excuse not to be able to find me. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on iTunes. I am all over the place. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and something will pop up that points you in my direction. And uh, I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me. And I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz.
Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check it hey out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So <laughs> if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.